0: Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear you and your word. Uh, Through Christ our Lord, amen. Well, you might be wondering why we had two Bible readings. Last Saturday afternoon, I was sitting there, chuffed to bits, thinking to myself, for once, I am very ahead on my sermon prep. For once, I will not be working right down to the wire. Sometimes foreshadowing is obvious. Of course, it wasn't until I double-checked the Google Doc, which is where we plan and prepare the preaching team, that I realized there had been a typo. While the document said 2 Samuel 8, the title that went alongside matched 2 Samuel 7. So there I was with a tough decision. Should I scrap what I had and start again or should I just ignore chapter 7 and ply on with chapter 8? Well tonight, inspired by the words of Bear Grylls, I've decided to improvise, adapt and overcome and I'm going to tackle both chapters in one. But for those of you checking your watches, don't worry, I will keep inside my time budget. Um, So we'll go on, we'll see how we get on. When I was at school, there was a teacher called Mr. Johnson, but the boys knew him as the Terminator. Mr. Johnson had the reputation of the scariest teacher in the school. He patrolled his classroom with a cricket bat in hand, slamming it on chemistry benches when you weren't paying attention or you were dozing off. So I vividly remember when I got my second year timetable and I looked down the teacher list and there he was, the Terminator, chemistry. And in his first lesson, he lined us up, boy after boy after boy, and he walked up and down cricket bat in hand and he said, boys, when Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, he fought many battles. And when he won a battle, he would take his enemies and he would line them up just like I've lined you up right now. And every third man would be killed where he stood. And then he slammed the cricket bat off the desk. He goes, Boys, in this classroom, I'm Julius Caesar, and you are the Gauls. You would be wise not to make an enemy of me. And of course, I was, I've never been so well behaved as I was in second year chemistry class. Uh, he put the real fear into me. But, you know, when we come to 2 Samuel 8, it can feel a bit like reading the Roman conquest of Gaul. We read that a captured army is made to lie down, measured out and two-thirds of them are put to death. Thousands of horses have their hamstrings cut, laming them and effectively leaving them maimed. Uh, And many nations are subdued and forced to pay tribute to King David. And And to us readers, this seems violent and oppressive. It seems expansionist and aggressive. It seems to be an abuse of power and an an exhortation of other nations, extortion of other nations. And there are those who would use a passage like this to condemn God or to discredit those who believe in him. They'd argue that David, who is God's chosen king and his representative on earth, is rampaging around, slaughtering people, maiming animals, and God is supporting him or even enabling him. And as a Christian, we can struggle with questions about how God is depicted in the Old Testament. We can struggle to square the Old Testament with the New Testament when we see the person of Jesus. So the big question as we come to chapter eight, is this an oppressive conquest, an abusive expression of earthly power and authority, or is there more to it? When we look at history, it doesn't take us very long to find examples of earthly power being abused. Used to oppress and persecute people, earthly authority can all too too often be self-serving. Used to extort people, used to keep those in power where they are and to line the pockets of the already wealthy. So when we have that example, it's easy to think of God's authority in the same way. But God's authority is never self-serving. In fact, God's greatest act of implementing his authority here on earth was to send his son to defeat death and sin by dying on a cross. And this was to bring us back to him and establish his kingdom here on earth. And we see this pattern of God's authority throughout the Old Testament. When God exercises his authority, it's always for the benefit of his people rather than himself. And we see this in Israel's leaders too. When they put God first, Israel is blessed. When they turn away from God and become self-serving, Israel falls into a downward spiral. In 2 Samuel 8, God is not exercising his rule directly. Rather, he is ruling through his chosen king, David, but is David conquering these kingdoms for his own glory, to line his own pockets or to expand his own power? Or is David conquering these nations by God's will, for God's glory and, to, and for God's kingdom? So the question is, is David's rule self-serving or God-serving? David is a greater king than Saul. You might remember from the, first, from the start of 1 Samuel, Israel didn't always have kings. Rather, they were governed by judges who were directly led by God. But while Samuel was a good judge and Israel flourished under his leadership, his sons, who never should have been there in the first place, were corrupt and self-serving. So Israel's elders fed up with these sons But lacking faith in God, look to the other nations. What do they have? What are they putting their trust in? And the answer comes back, kings. So they demand a king. They demand a king from God. And God tells Samuel, he tells, warn them what will happen. But they, and Samuel goes to them and warns them about how bad a king will be for them but they still demand a king to put their trust in and reject God. And so, Saul was picked to be king. Saul was the king that the Israelites demanded. And initially he had some success, but he was dishonest, prideful. He lacked integrity. Saul constantly tried to do things his own way. He constantly sidelined God Saul's reign became one of chaos and turmoil, and the Israelites suffered under his rule. David was the king chosen by God. He was raised up to replace Saul. He listened to the Lord and followed his commands. David was a very different king to Saul. In fact, after being mistreated by Saul, living on the run, being hunted by Saul, When Saul dies, David mourns his death. Saul's death, along with his sons, signified that David's reign had finally come. You would think he'd be celebrating, it's finally time for me to be king. But David weeps and tears his clothes. Of course, David isn't mourning the evil and mad reign of Saul, but rather he mourns the death of the Lord's anointed king. David is a different kind of king, and he rules in a very different way. So to really understand chapter eight and what David is doing in these military campaigns, we need to look back to chapter seven. So look in your Bibles with me at chapter seven, verses nine to 11. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make your, you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed the judges over people, my people of Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares, uh, sorry, declares. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Over the course of the Old Testament, from God, uh, God has been establishing his kingdom in the form of Israel. But why is God doing that? Well, Isaiah 42 tells us that Israel is to be the light to the Gentiles. The other nations surrounding them are to look at Israel and see God reflected in them. But because the world is fallen, because sin and death has come into the world, when God establishes his kingdom, it has enemies. These enemies hate the light that exposes them and seek to destroy the kingdom for their own gain. Israel has been plagued by attacks from neighboring nations, in particular, the Philistines who have relentlessly threatened Israel despite seeing God's supernatural powers against them. They continue to seek to destroy Israel and rebel against God. God promises David relief from his enemies. No more will they threaten him. God will cut them off and deliver David great victories over them. And in chapter eight, we see God fulfill this promise. But chapter eight is not just a fulfillment of the promises given in chapter 7, but also the promises given by Abraham or to Abraham right back in Genesis 15. You might be able to see the map on the screen behind me. The sort of pinky color towards the center that is the kingdom of Israel at the end of Saul's reign, and the bigger green color is the kingdom of Israel at the end of David's reign. These lands were lands that were promised to Abraham that his descendants would inhabit. David defeats these nations and subdues them, weakening them so they no longer threaten God's chosen people. We looked at how David is a different type of king, but this verse, uh, this verse reinforced, or this is further reinforced by the next verses, or these verses. David hamstrung chariot horses, this was a military, military necessity instead of just mere animal cruelty. David could not care for these horses while on military campaign and he couldn't just give them back to the enemy who would use them against him. He spared enough of them for 100 chariots. That David kept such a small number shows remarkable self-control and trust in God. David absolutely refused to trust in horses as a military weapon. He trusts in God instead. Then when some of these nations see that the wind is blowing, they approach David with tribute in the form of gold, silver, and bronze articles. David not only shows them mercy, but David immediately knows who these articles belong to. He knows that behind these victories, Uh, He knows who is behind these victories and he dedicates them to the Lord. David understands his victories are through God alone. Chapter 8 ends with a statement about David's kingship. Chapter 8, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. David was a fair king who upheld justice in his kingdom and the people he ruled over were greatly blessed through God by his reign. This is how God wanted to reign through the life of Saul, but Saul resisted the Lord and rejected his spirit. Because David allowed God to subdue him, the nations were subdued before David. Not to bring glory to David, but to establish God's kingdom in the form of Israel. Israel was to reflect God out to the other nations in the hope that they might be saved. Jesus is the greatest king. David was a fantastic king, but David was a human king. While he submitted to the Lord and followed his commands, he was not immune to sin. No more than two chapters after this high point in his reign, David gets himself involved in an affair and then tries to cover it up by sending her husband to die in battle. Pretty shocking behavior and hardly what you'd expect from God's chosen king. So what do we make of that? Didn't God choose David and give him these victories over his enemies so that Israel could be a light to the Gentile nations and to bring glory to God? And yet here we have David falling into sin as soon so soon and it seemed like everything was going his way. When trying to understand the Old Testament, the theologian John Woodhouse gives this advice. What God planned to do through Jesus is so big it took a massive preparation. And this preparation is recounted for us in the pages of the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament is to prepare for the coming of Jesus. To help us to see the dilemma that needs to be solved. And to help us to see the hopelessness in various alternative solutions. You open the Old Testament saying, now I want to see how this prepares me for understanding Jesus. That is what it's for. There's a second half to the promise God made to David. And when we read it through the lens of of that that John Woodhouse suggests, it helps us to understand the whole passage. Turn with me to chapter 7, 12 to 15. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall uh, build a house for my name and I will establish his throne and kingdom forever. I will be with him, sorry, sorry, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God didn't just promise David a greater kingdom, victories over his enemies, and rests from those who would seek to destroy Israel. God promised uh, to set up a dynasty from David's line He promised offspring to David and that God himself would be a father over David's heirs and consider them sons. God promised that David's offspring would build a house for him. God promised that while uh, he would discipline them if they strayed from him, he would never depart them like he did from Saul. And he promised that David's throne would endure forever. And each of these great promises were partially each of these great promises were partially fulfilled in Solomon, David's son and successor to the throne. Solomon ruled on David's throne. God's mercy never departed Solomon, even though he sinned. Um, Solomon would build God a magnificent house in the form of the temple. David's family line ruled over Israel for more than four generations, but eventually their sin and evil would become too much. Four generations is a long time, but it certainly isn't forever. You see folks, the Bible points to a far greater fulfillment of these promises. The well-known verse that we had read to us this morning in Isaiah 9, six to seven says this, "For uh, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to to order it and establish it, from that time forward, even forever. And at the start of uh, of John's, start of Luke's gospel, he makes this connection. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call her his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Luke 1, 31 to 33. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Jesus was a descendant of David's royal line. He established God's eternal kingdom. Israel was to be a light to the nations and bring them back to God. But the problem of sin was too great for Israel. And they continually wandered away from God. And the dilemma of death was too powerful for King David to defeat. So God sent his one and only son to solve the problem of sin and death once and for all. Paying the price that had to be paid for our waywardness and sin lives, to bring us back into direct relationship with God the Father, establishing his kingdom forever, Jesus does reign and will reign on David's throne forever. Interestingly, in Second Samuel 7 verse 14, it says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But finishing up my conclusion, this verse stumped me. If we are saying that Jesus fulfills this prophecy or this promise, how can Jesus be, how can Jesus commit inequity? Everybody knows that Jesus didn't commit sin. But on the cross, Jesus took our sins and bore the wrath of a just God. But God's steadfast love never left him. The Old Testament shows us how much we needed Jesus. David was a great king, and for much of his reign, he reflected God. But Jesus is God. David could never have died for our sins to save us. No earthly power could ever have saved us. I started this evening's service asking you, what are you putting your trust in? And as I close tonight, I hope that you see that the only one worth putting your trust in is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a good God whose authority and rule over us is for our benefit. Father, we pray tonight that we, like David, would submit to your rule in our lives and be God-serving people. Father, thank you that you sent your only son to die for us on a cross uh, to bring us back to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.